Father, I pray that we would be able to see you. See you as glorious and holy and wonderful. That we'll see your son as someone to pursue and bow our knee to and proclaim as God and King. We thank you, oh God, for all that you're doing. We ask, oh Lord, for grace to hear your word and to see you lifted really, really high. Have your way in and through our lives, in and through the service, working through every heart and every mind. Minister to every family. Move in a powerful way. For we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So grateful to see you here. God bless you. Glad that you're here. Welcome, Recovery House of Worship. Glad that you're here. Um, uh, we're, we're starting a brand new series today. Uh, it's called I Am Jesus. And uh, we're excited about the series uh, because it, for the next four weeks, we're going to see how Jesus... Um, impacts and influences our lives. So it's going to be really, really cool. So uh, what I want you to do is sort of make a shift in your mind to say, you know what, I can, so far it hasn't been too painful, right? This is not so bad, right? You come to church, it's like, oh, okay, it's not so bad. Um, so I, I want to ask you to consider that you might come back for the rest of this series. Because when we do series in our church, the weeks sort of build on top of each other. You won't have the whole big picture until you do the entire series. So we encourage you to come to that and uh, I hope that you'll take that into consideration. Um, uh, it's Easter here and we, we just, we're so grateful. Isn't this band fantastic? Aren't these worship leaders this great? Yeah, we just thank God for you guys. Praise God. Um, I want to point out something before we start. Um, we think that the church should be the most creative place on earth. We, we think that that's, that's where creativity is supposed to happen. We serve a creative God who created us in his image. And so that would mean that we would be uh, creative like him. And so someone has been coming to our church and they've been uh, coming for a few months now. And they said, you know what, I'm a sculptor. And so you know, what they did was they just started to create this. Isn't that cool? And it's like, isn't that awesome? And so I just wanted to point that out because if you're sort of here and you have like these maybe unchurchy, you think, uh, spiritual gifts, right? You're a dancer, you're a, you know, a videographer, you're a, a, you know, whatever gift and talent that you have, we want you to know that here is the best place on earth. The church community is the most wonderful place on earth where you could use your gifts and your talents, especially for those of you who have the gift and talent of making arroz con gandules. Um, I want you to see me after the service. And uh, yeah, okay. So, so when I first got married, when I first connected with my wife, when we got married, I thought everything was going to be perfect. I thought we would never, yeah, all the people who are laughing are like, yeah, no, the young people aren't laughing. They're like, what's wrong with that? Yeah, no, 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 you give it a minute. The older people are going like, yeah, man, I hear you. Yeah, and so what happened was is that I had a perspective that everything was supposed to be perfect. We would never argue because I'm such a wonderful guy, right? <laughs> And we would, you know, we would have sex every day because, you know, look at me, right? I'm beautiful. And so, so I, but that was the perspective that I had. And so when we started to argue, when we started to have confrontation, when there was sort of friction that started to happen, it added, my perspective added another level of pain and suffering both to myself and that I gave to my wife because I had this perspective that everything was supposed to be perfect. You know what's interesting is that we all have different kinds of perspectives. We all have, we all have perspectives that can be potentially harmful in our own lives. Some of us had them when we uh, got married and we said, oh, this is gonna be perfect and then when perfect didn't show up, you just said, I gotta go because you think that that's the way it's supposed to be. Some of us, when we started that new job, 
We said, oh, none of the old problems are going to follow us to this new institution. So you started to work, and then you started to see the same old problems, and you got discouraged. You see, perspective has a way. Your perception, your perspective on life and things has an enormous impact on your and all of our lives. So this is never more important than in our perspective on who God is. This is never more important than when we look at God and we evaluate our perception or perspective on God because all of us, everyone in this room has a perspective on God. There's a bunch of us here who want, you know what, you're here because you're just trying to be a good friend or you're trying to be a good husband or wife or something like that. Somebody invited you and you're here. But you know what? You think about, you think of Jesus about as much as you think of like Thor, right? Like you go, okay, yeah, Jesus and Thor, they're on the same level, right? They, they, you, don't, you don't really have use for God. There's no real reason to get into a relationship with God. He's sort of a myth or a figment of your imagination or someone else's imagination. Some of us, we have an experience with God where we've known him for a while, but something happened in our lives and we deviated from God. And now it's like, wow, it's been a while since I've sort of been in a community of believers. But all of us, all of us have a perspective. Every one of us, without exception, have a perspective And that perspective will either add joy to our lives or it will add great tension and pain. And so today I want you to sort of shift your perspective on who Christ is because when we see who Jesus is, when we see him high and lifted up, when we see him glorious, there's something that changes. It changes our lives. It changes how we react or interact with God. Now, the kind of perspective that you're going to have is you're either going to have, of life in general, you're either going to have sort of the dog perspective of life or the cat perspective of life, right? So there's basically two types of people in the world, right? You see life the way a dog sees life or you see life the way a cat sees life. Now, I found this on the internet. I thought it was really, really funny, and so I thought I would read it to you. This is the perspective of dogs and cats, It's, uh, if a dog had a diary, this is what it would look like. And if a cat had a diary, this is what it would look like, okay? So here's the dog's diary. 8 a.m., dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30 a.m., a car ride, my favorite thing. Then a walk to the park, my favorite thing. Then I got rubbed on my belly and petted, my favorite thing. Then I had some lunch, my favorite thing. Played in the yard, my favorite thing. Wag my tail, my favorite thing. Got some milk bones, my favorite thing. Got to play ball, my favorite thing. Wow, watch TV with other people, my favorite thing. (laughs) Sleeping on the bed, my favorite thing. If a dog had a diary, this is what it would look like. Now, if a cat had a diary, if a cat had a diary, here's what it would look like. Day 983 of my captivity. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while the other inmates and I are fed fed hash or some sort of dry nuggets. Although I make my contempt for the rations particularly clear, I nevertheless must eat something in order to keep up my strength. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. In an attempt to disgust them, I once again vomited on the carpet. Today, I decapitated a mouse and dropped its headless body at their feet. I had hoped this would strike fear into their hearts, since it clearly demonstrates what, it, what I am capable of. However, they merely made condescending comments about what a good little hunter I am. <laughs> there was some sort of assembly of their accomplices tonight. 
I was placed in solitary confinement during the duration of the event. However, I could hear the noises and smells of food and overheard a conversation that said I was in confinement due to the power of allergies. <laughs> I must learn what this means and how to use it to my advantage. Today, I was almost successful in an attempt to assassinate one of my tormentors by weaving around his feet as he was walking. I must try this again tomorrow, but at the top of the stairs. <laughs> See, in life, there are people who have the dog perspective of life and the cat perspective of life. But here's what we know. We know that the perspective that you have is going to influence how you live that the way you view life is in a large part going to influence how you experience life. And again, this is never ever more important than how you view Jesus. How you view your relationship with God. See, some of us think that God is far off and that he's very, very distant. And because of that, you live a life like if it's got to be, it's got to be up to you. There's no help. There is no Calvary. There is nobody coming to help you with your issues, your problems, your struggles, your sufferings. In fact, you are on your own. Others of us, God can be personal, but he's only personal in a way that a prostitute is personal. That you can, in some way, earn favor, draw him into your life to get whatever you want from him, and then discard him as you no longer need him. But all of us have a perspective on life. And by the end of this service, nothing up my sleeve, I want your perspective to be of that of a king God who loves you so much and was separated from you because of your sin that he would die on the cross, sent by his father to die on the cross for you and for me and invited you in a relationship with him. If you're not sure, if God loves you, all you have to do is look at the cross. That's a love that is spectacular in its nature. So we're going to look at a scripture. And we're going to look at a bunch of people. Well, not a bunch, just a few people who, like you, had an idea about who God was and what he should be doing. And their perspective was completely transformed by a moment in time. We're going to find our scripture in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Now, we have a tradition in our church, and one of the things we do is we stand at the reading of God's word. Why? Because God's word is like holy and awesome and other than. So if you're capable of standing, feel free to stand up. But I know some of us can't stand, so it's, it's fine if you stay seated. So we're going to read this together, all in full breath, and uh, we'll read it together. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, on the count of three. One, two, three. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. This is God's word. Please have a seat. So these Jewish disciples, they put their hope and trust in this leader, this Jewish man 
who comes from a family of carpenters. He said that he was the Messiah. Now you got to understand that has that has emotionally charged. That is an emotionally charged phrase to say that he was the Messiah is to say that he was the Savior. And these people had great need to be saved. See, they were in a situation where they were being oppressed by Roman authorities. They didn't have liberty like you and me would have. They didn't have the kind of freedom that they wanted. And so when a Savior came over, they, they were like, yeah, we are ready for saving. We are ready for a Savior. But this Savior didn't act like the one that they were expecting. He acted different than the kind of Savior they were hoping for. See, this Savior not only performed miracles, which they were expecting, and this Savior not only spoke truth, which is what they were hoping for. This Savior not only made promises, which enlivened their hearts and gave them joy. This Savior went ahead and got himself killed. And that broke their idea of who God is and how God should be. They didn't have a compartment in their mind for a crucified Savior. So on this Sunday, they came with a mindset that their Messiah, their leader, their Savior is dead. And he wasn't all he was supposed to be. So we read in John chapter 20, verse 1, early on, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, while it was still dark, that means it was early, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now I want you to notice something. The stone was removed from the entrance not to let Jesus out. It was so that the disciples could be allowed to see in. So that their, their faith could be reinforced with the historicity of the moment. There was an empty tomb. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon and Peter, because what do you do, right, when someone that you love, something bad has happened to them? She went to other people, other authorities, hoping that they could help her out. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is John. That's how John refers to himself in his uh, book. The one Jesus loved... And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. I want you to notice something. She did not say, the Lord is resurrected. What great joy. She said, that never entered her mind. She said, they had taken him out of the tomb. Someone stole his body. You know why? Because when people die, you don't need to be a part of the 21st century and have the kind of science that we have now, today, to know that when people die, they tend to stay dead. <laughs> this is not a new invention. Like, nobody in the 21st century said, you know what, I tried an experiment. When people die, they don't get up again. That hasn't happened. And I know that some people, that's, that's your pushback. You go, well, it was easy for the disciples to believe that about Jesus. It was easy for the disciples to accept that Jesus had rose from the dead. They didn't have the science that we have today. They were primitive people. Let me tell you something. All throughout culture, all throughout history, dead people stay dead. And when she saw the empty tomb, it was not her first reaction to say, oh my goodness, isn't this wonderful? He rose from the dead. She didn't have a place in her mind. That compartment had not been invented yet. She was experiencing this new and fresh. See, for me and you, we've heard the resurrection story, and it doesn't shock us anymore. Let me tell you something. Go to a morgue. Go to a morgue. Right? This is recently in the news. Did anybody hear about this? There was an older man who, like, was declared dead. And he had like a pacemaker or something like that. And he was put in the morgue. He was set up for three days and then got up. Like said, oh, what's it? Like his pacemaker started to work again or something like that. Could you imagine how that, how the person in the hospital must have reacted to that moment? <laughs> they have the idea of what a resurrected Christ feels like. 
See, me and you go, oh my gosh, isn't that cute? Jesus rose from the dead. No, no, no. Oh my God. It's like, whoa. You know, I was like, I cannot. Nobody, nobody was waiting for that. That was beyond their comprehension. That is something else. You know why? Because dead people tend to stay dead. And so she said, somebody stole him. Matter of fact, this was such a pervasive thing that an emperor eventually said, if anybody desecrates a tomb or tries to steal a body or even breaks a seal on, on a tomb, that they, were to, they, they put capital punishment on that crime. That's how pervasive it got. It just, you know, they had to punish it. And so she goes, and she goes to the people in authority. She said they'd taken their, his body. Nobody, Peter, huge man of faith, Peter, who we would name buildings after. Peter, who was a rock of belief. That Peter didn't go, hey, Mary, get with the program. Jesus is risen. Come on. Didn't you get the memo? That wasn't his story. Neither was John's. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Do you know why they started for the tomb? Because they didn't believe her. When you hear something incredible, have you ever done this? Someone says something to you, and you go, shut up. <laughs> or, or, or someone says something, and you just get out of town. Or you say, you lie. You know, why, why, why do we say that? Because what they're saying is incredible. Well, this is Peter's version of shut up. Like he's, he and John run to the tomb. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first because John was much younger than Peter, so he was probably in better shape. And he, uh, let's see, verse, both were, right, verse five. He bent over, this is John, he bent over, looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. This is, nobody understands what's happening right now. It's a sacred moment. He doesn't even bother to go in. Then Simon Peter, but this is Peter, you know, the same guy who would walk on, right? Like, how many people are like that, right? Whose personality is like that? Hey, Jesus, tell me to walk on water and I'll do it. And I was like, yeah, that's his personality. So he doesn't bother to wait by the tomb. He goes right inside. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Yep, that's Peter. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, there's so much happening here, but I want you to see something very, very powerful. I want you to see that Christ is not only there, but it seems like he's gone through the linen. He has like a new body. Now, in the Bible, a resurrected body, we've seen that before. The scriptures speak about precious few people who God miraculously rose from the grave. But every one of them that rose from the grave died again. You see, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he raised him up to life, but life to die again. When Lazarus came forth, and who John, just a few chapters before, had described, Lazarus comes forth, what, with, with the grave clothes on him. Remember, he, they, he tells people, take those grave clothes off of him. Jesus doesn't need those grave You know why? Because he'll never see death. Again, there is something unique about his body, kind of something to look forward to in the resurrected bodies that we'll have when we see him. Jesus goes through, and he's not there. They get there. Now, John sees this, and he has an epiphany. Finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, here's the, here's the big idea for today. Wasn't John already believing in Jesus when he was following him? I mean, John had followed Jesus for years. It's like three years. And so John is following Jesus. He's pursuing. He saw Jesus do these great miracles. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw Jesus do this incredible uh, uh, 
uh, uh, multiplying of the fish and the bread. He saw Jesus do incredible things. John believed in Jesus. And yet here it says, when John saw the empty tomb, he saw and believed. I think that what the Bible is trying to say is that there's something more profound happening here. I think that there's a belief that says, uh-huh, I believe that. And then there's a kind of belief that is deeper than that. Like, when I was around 11 years old, I started to smoke cigarettes, right? Pretty young, right? None of you young people get any ideas, okay? This was a bad, bad, nasty, disgusting habit. And so I picked up cigarettes. Now, if you ask me, hey, Ed, do you believe the Surgeon General's warning on the cigarette pack? I would have said, absolutely. I totally believe that. But now that I'm on this side of 40, listen to me. I really believe. the. Back then, I believed. I was like, oh, yeah, sort of. I kind of believe. I, I, I started to hang out with, with bad company. You know what I mean by bad company? People like me. Right. And so I started to hang out with them. And if you would have came up to me and said, hey, Ed, don't you believe that bad company, company corrupts good morals? I said, that's probably true. Yeah, I believe that. What are you going to do? I'm going to hang out with bad company. But now I have a belief that's deeper than that belief. You see, when we, you and I think of belief, we think of like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. It won't change a thing in our lives. It's sort of like a mental ascension. And God is saying, no, 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 no. The kind of belief that John had here was more profound. It was bigger than that. John moved from believe that to trust him. And there's a difference. There was a shift that happened from believe that, oh my goodness, look at the miracles that he's doing. Oh my goodness, look at uh, the multiplication of the fish and the bread. Oh my goodness, look at the words that he's speaking. They're truly from God. There was a, a movement from, yes, he's special, to my whole life is going to be influenced, changed, surrendered unto him. He went from believe that to trust him. And it changed his whole life. Amen. Now, some of us, when we come to Jesus, we have that sort of faith. We believe him. Right? If I went up to you, if I, if I gave you the Christian quiz, you, you, you get all A's. Right? I would say, you know, and I would say, hey, do you think Jesus was special? You would go, absolutely. Jesus, man, he's Lord. Yeah, absolutely. And I go, hey, do you think the Bible has some good things to say? You would say, of course, the Bible is a sacred book. And I'd say, hey, is that going to make any difference in your life? You would go, absolutely not. It's a distant belief. It's a belief that doesn't have any effect on your life. It doesn't affect how you interact with people. It doesn't affect affect the company you keep. It doesn't affect the words that come out of your mouth or the actions you do with your body. It doesn't affect who you have sex with or who you have to, or you spend time with it. In fact, this is a belief system that is about as relevant as some mythology that you would read in Greek myths. See, it's a, I believe that, I occasionally go to church. I, you know, when I walk by a church building, I'll do the, you know, the sign of the cross on my, Body. I'll occasionally go, uh, you know, so like seasons and periods would happen. So Christmas is around, so you give out gifts and maybe you'll go to church. And that, I, I believe that, but there's no impact on your life. And that is the farthest thing that Jesus wanted for your life. He wanted, Jesus wanted your trust in him to influence the intake of alcohol in your life. Jesus wanted your trust in him to influence how you respond to your spouse. Jesus wanted the fact that he died for you, for your sins, rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to the Father and promised to live in you. The fact that he did all that, he actually wanted that to influence the way you view life, experience despair, and and live your days. He actually wanted to affect that. He wanted you to move from believe that to trust 
him. Because here's what happens. Imagine this. The king of the universe, he says, I am king, I am God, I am Lord of all. I died for your sins. That, and you're not sure what that means? That means all the stuff that you are not going to say in a public room like this, the stuff that you feel ashamed about, the stuff that you would just as soon keep to yourself, the secrets that are in your closet, the stuff that you won't even tell your spouse for fear that they might not think of you the way they ought to. Those things are what the Bible calls sins. And Jesus says, you can't take away your own shame. I'll take it away from you. So what does that do? When I sit at my office and I feel guilty and shame about some past experience that I've, I've, I've done, I go, oh my gosh, I was, I'm so embarrassed. I feel so shameful about this thing. Jesus reminds, hey, Ed, there was a punishment that was laid out for that, and I took that for you. You don't have to feel shame anymore. In fact, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And what about the times where there are people in my life and everybody seems not to like me? Have you ever had moments like that where you are confident that everybody has taken your picture out of their wallet, right? And they go, wow, I am not Mr. Popular anymore, boy. They don't like me at all. When the whole world seems against me and I feel completely alone, there is a sense, not a sense, there is a reality, there is a truth where Jesus says, Edwin, you and me is a majority. There's all the power that you need. I have all the love for you. I'll come for you. Yeah, but, and when me and my wife are arguing, because Jesus rose from the dead, when me and my wife are arguing and I feel completely unlovely, Jesus says, I love you. I'll minister to you. I don't have to go to anyone else. I don't have to pursue anybody's affections. Jesus has given me all the affection that I need in order to endure. When great despair comes over our lives, you know, the kind of despair that just makes you want to cry when you think about it, the tough moments of life that you experience, whether a health issue or a, or a relational crisis or a, a hopeless situation, when moments like that come up and I feel like I can't go on any further. Jesus said, I overcame death, hell, and the grave. I will surely, if I could do that and I live now inside you, I will help you to overcome those things that you think there's no way that you could conquer. When In moments of my life, when I feel the people around me Powering up because I have Christ in my life, Jesus can remind me, hey, Edwin, I had all the power in the world and I didn't have to power up. And you know what? The whole world is blessed because I didn't power up. And now I can keep you humble and I can give you strength to walk through this challenge that you're experiencing because he's true, because he's real. See, Jesus makes all the difference in the world, but in order for that to happen, your perspective has to change. You have to go from believe that to trust him. Say that with me. Believe that to trust him. And so that's, that's what I'm going to ask you to do today. I'm going to ask you to go from believe that Jesus Nice guy, okay, to trust him, affecting every decision I make, affecting all the moments of my life, uh, helping me. Listen to me. I can have hope in Christ because Jesus rose from the grave, bodily resurrection, not just, oh, I know that he lives because he lives in my heart. That's sweet, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a bodily resurrection. You go, I don't believe that. Now you lost me. I can understand like he's spiritually raised from the dead. That I get. I don't believe it. Listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus wanted to prove this point so much that he told his disciple, give me, give me some fish. I'm, I'm going to have a fish meal in front of you. And not because Jesus was hungry, but because he wanted to prove, hey, listen, spirits don't do this. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Now, what that means to me is that all of life changes. All of life changes. My perspective goes from despair to hope. My perspective goes from self-centered to Christ-centered. My perspective goes from fear to trust. It changes everything. It gives me 
a purpose for living life, Jesus being raised from the dead. A purpose. I used to live, you know, now I'm, I'm past 40. And so, you know, some of you who uh, went through that stage of life, you know that at a certain point in your life, sometimes it's 40, sometimes it's 30, sometimes it's 20. But there's a point in your life where you sort of look over all the craziness of your life and you go, is this all there is? Right? Work, vacation sometimes, fun on the weekends. You go, because I've been doing this for now 40 years. Is this all there is? Is this all there is to life that I would work to rest for the weekend, to get up on Monday to work again? And then hopefully, this is the dream, hopefully do that frequently enough until I'm totally useless, have enough money so that I don't have to get up and do anything anymore and just sort of sit at home and really do nothing for, until the end of my days. Like, that's the dream. Surely there's better to life than that. Surely. When I come to Christ, the, the difference that that makes in my life changes everything. I have a purpose for living. That my purpose is to do the will of the Father. And that He leads me. And He guides me. And He draws me to Himself. He directs and encourages me. He gives me strength. He gives me words to say to people that can have eternal consequences. I now have a purpose that's bigger than just the life that we experience now. Not only does it give me a purpose, but it also helps me to endure suffering. Now, I, I, I know you got your story of suffering, but I've, I've had mine. And I know that your story of suffering is greater than my story of suffering because you experienced your story, right? But I've experienced some painful moments. Just a couple of weeks ago, my mother, who's been sick for a really long time, really long time. Matter of fact, there's a unique emotion that comes with having a sick parent because when they're down, it's hard to describe. You almost want to die. And when they're up, you're like, this is amazing. She's getting better. This is incredible. Well, I've been going through this with my mom for like 35 years. And a few months ago, we had one of those highs where she was like, wow, she's doing better than ever. This is awesome. And now she was in the hospital and I was talking to her and it was clear to me that she was no longer here on earth. And she started to sing and, you know, carry on. And tears started to well up in my eyes. And then I was reminded this ain't always how it'll be. That I have hope in Christ, that I have hope that she's put her trust in Christ and that her mental deficiency doesn't disqualify her from heaven because the only qualification for entrance is that Jesus had died for her sins, which she gladly accepted. And I said, this won't be always. And I just, it was painful. But I can go through suffering on this earth because Jesus rose from the dead, the tomb is empty, and he gives me life. And he tells me that this is not all that there's ever going to be. You know, um, I sometimes go to different places to um, speak, and I travel. And so I was going to a place somewhere, uh, I think it was in New Jersey, but it was far enough from my house that I needed to start from somewhere else. So my wife got me a, um, uh, uh, it was like a three-day, uh, not convention, but something like that. And so my wife got me a hotel. Now this hotel was like, whoa, okay? <laughs> Not in a good way, right? This was like, when the prostitutes came up to me to ask me for a light, I knew I was no longer in Kansas, right? And so, so I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have a light, you know? And so like, I'm, I'm here, right? And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm a pastor. Somebody's gonna walk by and go, Pastor Edward, what are you doing in this hotel? You know the only people come to this hotel for one reason. I'm like, I swear. So, right, so the drug, right? So, like, I walk past the drug dealers, and I walk past the prostitutes, and then I got into my room, and my room smelled, and, and the carpet was nasty. And, I, man, I, I, you know, I could see my car. I had the shade just opened enough so I could see my car, and I kept on locking it every now and again. You know, I was like, make sure that car is locked. And, and so it wound up, and, and this hotel, to tell you how bad it was, this hotel was in the Bronx. Oh, now you understand. Now you get it. It was in the boogie down Bronx. Oh, my. So, yeah, I know some of my Bronx friends are like, yo, what are you saying? 
I'm saying the Bronx is something else. All right. So, so I was in here. And so, like, right, I, so what I had done was I, I, I took the chair by the door and locked it like that. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. Um, but I was staying. I wasn't about, I wasn't trying, like, you know how, like, sometimes you go to a hotel and you want to walk around and you're like, ooh, look at the trees and all that. Other stuff. I'm like, yeah, I ain't looking no trees in this place. I am staying in my room. And I was just kind of looking at all the creepy crawly things move around. I was like, all right, I'm going to stay right here. And so, so here's the thing, right? So I got to the hotel and I realized at that moment, I was like, wait, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. And that, he rose from the dead. And there is life that I have access to that these people need to know. So I made sure I put my wallet in my room and, you know, left it there. I was like, if I'm going to get mugged, I ain't losing nothing, right? And so, so I just took, you know, I wasn't stupid about it. But I put everything on the side. And, and I, I went out there. And I started to talk to the prostitutes and the drug dealers and all that other stuff. And I was just hanging out. And I was just sitting there. And there was this woman who came in. She came in on taxi. You have to understand, this must have been the last house on the block for her because nobody would go to this. She had two little babies running around. And they were just like, they couldn't have been more than seven years old. I mean, they were just little, little guys. And they were running around. And I could hear her talking on the phone about the despair that she was experiencing. She lost everything. All of her worldly belongings were in two black trash bags. You know what I'm talking about? Those garden trash bags. Yeah, and all of her earthly belongings were in those. And she was there. And we got to talking. And we started to talk about, you know, difficulty and how she was going through and all that other stuff. And so I did something on Facebook. I said, hey, can anybody help this woman or can anybody tell me of a shelter? And by God's grace, because right, this is how the church works. Someone from this church, Ron and Maria said, um, they said, why don't you, hey, Ed, why don't you just bring her over to my house? And she stood at their house. You know why? The reason that they did that was because they realized that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was new and that there was life in Christ. And they had moved from believe that to trust him so they could open up their doors. It influences how they behaved. And she stood with them for a week. And for that week, they tried to help her and find her a place. And they found her a, a, a what do you call it, like a kind of a... What do you call those things? Um, uh, like a homeless thing, like a shelter or something. They, they found her a shelter of some sort where she could go and start to try to put the pieces of her life back together. Listen to me. You know why I wasn't upset at being at the hotel and I wasn't too upset at my wife, although initially I was. Um, do you know why I didn't stay upset about the hotel thing? Here, it was a simple reason. That ain't my house. I don't live there. I was going to stay there for two or three days, and then I was going to leave. So I could endure all sorts of hardship, all sorts of difficulty, all sorts of inconveniences, because I knew that there was a home for me much nicer than this that I was looking forward to. Come in a little closer. When we're in Christ and we move from believe that to trust him, we know that this earth is not our home. You know what this earth is? It is a hotel in the Bronx. And so, when you, listen to me. So, you go, but oh my goodness, why is there evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Because you're in a hotel in the Bronx. That's why. And because you know that, then you can experience suffering and difficulty. But that's the difference that Christ makes when you go from, say it with me, Believe that to trust him. You can endure hardships and suffering and difficulty because earth is not your home. Heaven is your home because you moved from, say it with me, believe that to trust him. You, go, you can go and experience disappointments with your job and even with your spouse because this is not all there's ever going to be because you moved from believe that to trust him. You can even have your body start wasting away and sickness start to ravage your body and know that you will have a new resurrected body because you've moved from believe that to trust him. So listen to me in a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to move from believe that to trust him. But before I do, we're going to listen to some testimonies of people who've gone from believe that to trust him. Now listen, today is your day. Today, I want you to make that transition. I don't want you to talk yourself out of it. 
I want you to say, yeah, I'm going to move from believe that to trust him. I'm going to say Jesus is perfect. And he lived the life. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, but you did not. And that he died the death that you deserve to die. Another way to say it. The gospel is simply this. You're worse than you think. And you're more loved by Christ than you can imagine. That's the gospel. He sacrificed himself for you. So I'm going to ask you to get into a relationship with Christ, not on your terms, not the way you want. I don't want you to go to, oh yeah, I believe that. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're going to, from believe that, to trust him. The first testimony, the first proclamation, and by the way, none of these people got paid to do this. I'm, none of them got coerced. People just go, you know what, I want to, because what, you know what baptism is? Baptism is an outward expression, an outward, uh, uh, an outward visual of what Jesus has done on the inside. And so they're going to share with you what God has done on the inside, and then they'll get baptized. Listen to me. You don't want to miss the rest of this series, because they're going to talk about how Jesus has grown them. And you know, that's exactly what we're going to talk about in part four of this series that we are at part one at. And did you know that in two weeks, we're going to talk about how Jesus helps us to overcome guilt and shame and have forgiveness? Don't, isn't it true? Like, don't, don't you want that? And in, uh, next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus guides us throughout life. So you don't want to miss any of these. So I encourage you, make a decision in your mind. I'm going to come next week. I'm going to come next week and start finding out what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done for me. But now... I want you to give a great, rousing welcome to the first testimony we're going to hear from Mike. Mike, come on up. Mike, Hello, family. My name is Mike. I come, I come before you as the youngest child of a Catholic family. Throughout my childhood, my family didn't have much. I always felt inadequate when it came to appearances at school. At an early age, I dealt with my insecurities by using drugs to escape and found belonging within the wrong crowd. My uncles always pushed into my head that, that all I needed in life was money, power, and respect. That mindset got me arrested many times. I was blessed to not go to prison. However, I was in a prison of my own. Addiction took over my life. I kept up the lifestyle of drugs, women, and clubs. I got married early. I tried filling the void I felt within myself. I thought having a wife and a kid would change me. My father-in-law was in recovery and he used to tell me that I was powerless. And I said, what do you mean? I've got all these guns, all the drugs, my team under my wing. That's what I thought life was about. He got me to try recovery and I made a few meetings along with a friend, Ron Rivera. But I never committed to the program and I struggled with addiction for 15 more years. Finally, Ron invited me to church and I came but I didn't hear anything the first time. He didn't give up on me, and neither did God. Mm. He, brought me back to, he, brought me, he brought me back again about a year ago. Pastor Edwin was preaching. Pastor Raymond asked anyone who wanted to surrender to Christ to come up to the front. I was going through withdrawal from heroin and suboxone, and I felt weak that day, shivering, but I felt God called me to come up. Pastor Ray was praying for me, and I felt the withdrawal sisters were lifted. Mm. Pastor Gus allowed me to live in the church, but I was still using even while I was here. Pastor Gus asked me, are you going to run our self-will or are you gonna do God's will? I went to detox and rehab, and finally I started getting serious about living a new life. I stayed away from people, walked around with a, basic, with a Bible and a basic text. God was giving me the strength from praying and reading the Bible especially Psalms 116, the part that says, I am truly your servant, Lord. I serve you as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. Now I'll tell everybody that I didn't get clean. God got me clean. All the pastors love, gave me love. Pastor Gus gave me tough love. Pastor Edwin invited me into a Bible study. And Pastor Raymond, Ray always said, don't use no matter what. I felt the love here in the church. I felt at home. 
Now I don't seek the material stuff to fill a void. I'm seeking God, and he's been providing. I don't have the fear anymore that I felt what I did on the street. God has given me guidance. I feel hopeful. I'm at peace. I'm not perfect, but now people see me as a totally different person. When I got back to my own neighborhood, I stopped and I talked to them, shared the gospel with them. Amen. I have a few friends who I'm inviting to church, people out of prison or just getting clean. And I have a desire to read the Bible and do God's will, a desire to pray, longing to go to church and fellowship with others who have experienced repentance. Just for today, I have eight months, 25 days clean. Praise God. Praise God, that's awesome. Okay. Next person to share what God has done in their life, homie. Yep, you're next. Let's welcome homie. Hello, family. My name is homie. I was mad at God for a long time. I always asked why I was molesting when I was a kid. Why I never have a father? Why I never had anything at home? Why my mother had to do everything? Sorry. I was attracted to the street. <clears throat> At 13, I was shooting dope. I was confused, lonely, and angry. I didn't know why. I spent three years in juvenile. I came, I came, I came out rebellious. I used drugs hard. My mom, my mom was always crying. She lost a lot of weight because of my lifestyle. My father lived in New York, so I decided to move from Puerto Rico my mother told me, I should prefer to send you money to jail than send you flowers to the cemetery. So she blessed me and sent me here. That's when I met my father. But my father was using drugs too. And I continue to feel confused, lonely, and angry. I always want to die. I mean, I wasn't scared to die. And mind you, I was only 19. Drugs ran me from everything. All I knew to do was go in and out of jail. I have five kids. I never had the time or the money to provide the love or to be there financially. In other words, I became my father. So I didn't want anything to do with God, with church or people who was connected with God. I blame him. I finally got clean. <clears throat> and Fanny started making meals with me. Around her birthday, back in 2008, I asked her, what you want for your birthday? And she said, all I want, all I want for you is for me to go to church. It was my first, that was my first encounter with God. It was something there. I didn't know what it was or what I felt, but it felt good in my spirit. I say yes to Jesus. Yeah. And since that, I accept Jesus into my heart. I, have finally, I am finally safe. I know I'm in his care. <clears throat> Recovery House of Worship has been a loving family to me. Even though in the beginning I didn't like Pastor Ray. <laughs> <laughs> or Pastor Edwin. because that was too spiritual for me. <laughs> but I was blessed to have time with them, get to know them, and now I love them. Amen. I was also blessed to meet Pastor Gus, and I'm grateful to have three men of God part of my life. I have the honor I have the honor to be in the ministry today as part of the Usher team. I am learning how to grow, to grow in my work with Jesus through the classes we are taking. I am finally smiling in the midst of my situation. Fanny and I recently got engaged and we will be married. Yes. 
Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be in constant prayer. This is what I must practice. This is how I want to grow. Thank you. We welcome Fanny now. Come on now. Let's welcome Fanny. I'm already a mess. <laughs> Hello, family. My name is Fanny, and happy Easter. Happy Easter. Before I met Christ, I was a mess. I had no direction, no hope, no real honest knowledge of how to love. I was consumed with self-centeredness, self-hatred, and I was deep in active addiction. I abandoned my family, and I couldn't get away from me quick enough. I remember walking on the beach and screaming out, I don't want to live anymore. Take me already. Back then, I wasn't sure if anyone was listening. But I know now that I wasn't alone. I believed with all these people here on earth, so much better than the drug addict that I am, how could anyone possibly love me? In my mind, the only solution was death. <laughs> but Christ had another plan. It turned out that it wasn't about being perfect, doing the right thing, or faking a front. It was about him going to him with all my brokenness, my hurt, my pain, and asking for his help. His love, his forgiveness. Before I even realized how, who, or what, God brought, God brought Omi into my life and used him as the vessel to get me to the 12-step program. After a few months in recovery, I relapsed twice because at first, I didn't fully surrender. I didn't fully surrender like the program suggested. I needed to do some more research. One day after spending the day on the beach and finally really surrendering, I was looking out to the ocean and I felt as if I needed to go to church, but not the church I was raised in. I needed to try something else. So I asked my neighbor to take me to her church and it was then, it was there when I realized Christ was always present in my life waiting. I started to attend Recovery House of Worship, and I felt like this is where I belonged. I remember coming here to the five o'clock service. One day, a pastor Ray asked those who were struggling to come to the front and be, to be prayed over. And Louisa stood behind me and prayed over me. I remember the pain I felt because of who I became and I remember I was sobbing as she prayed for me. In my mind, all I could say was a million thank yous can never be enough for picking me up, dusting me off, and gently putting me together. And that was the day I asked Jesus to take over my life. So what can I do to show my gratitude, my love, serve in the ministry, learn from my teachers, continue to crave his love, and share with others how he, how he has revealed himself to me? I have taken the new life in Christ and now I'm following Christ's class. They are a commitment not only to myself, but to most importantly, the also worthy, also beautiful, magnificent Jesus Christ. Coming to Christ hasn't made me perfect. Coming to Christ has made my life worth living. My life with him has been an amazing journey. I feel the warmth of his love on my face in the midst of every storm. 
I was introduced to a scripture that I've witnessed. Excuse me. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's never left me, even when I didn't know him. Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. yep.